The following is a production of PMA Magazine. Hello and welcome to Season 1, Episode 4 of the PMA Podcast. My name is Matt Johnston. I'm the publisher and editor of PMA Magazine. And in case you're new to PMA, and if you are, welcome. PMA stands for Positive Mental Attitude, and we focus on positive news about good people doing great things for their community or the world. PMA started as a print magazine in 2019, and you can learn more about us and our mission at our website, getthatpma.com. That's where you can get access to this podcast, check out our print magazine, and support us by picking up a t-shirt, a subscription, or some of our other merchandise. 100% of your money goes right back into the magazine and the podcast and helps us keep doing this, so we really do appreciate your support. And with that, let's jump right into this next episode, Season 1, Episode 4, Hans and Nick Shippers. Within the first few hours of brothers Hans and Nick Shippers pulling their converted 99 Chevy Bluebird schoolie up into a quaint Californian coastal town, they're called van lifers, hippies, and are encouraged to leave town by guys flying Confederate flags. This is all a part of the game when you're changing the way we educate our future generations about environmental issues by visiting schools and teaching kids about the negative impact of plastic pollution on our oceans. Brothers gotta work it out. They're doing this by forging and leveraging strategic partnerships with organizations like Parley for the Oceans and Sustainable Coastlines Hawaii to bring their message to students of all ages. So far, they've reached more than 20,000 kids and adults with their unique curriculum, which includes workshops, speaking engagements, and beach cleanups. It's been a huge success, too, with 25% of the communities they visit implementing some kind of tangible action to reduce plastic pollution. Hans and Nick are just getting started, but they've already done so much to inspire and elevate and raise awareness about the threat to what may arguably be the Earth's most precious and important gift our oceans. So with that, I want to introduce you to Hans and Nick Shippers on Season 1, Episode 4 of the PMA Podcast. Let's just get started. I want to go way back and trace the roots of your empathy and kind of where you're at. So just introduce yourselves. Tell us where you grew up and sort of what you remember about growing up in, in Kingston. Yeah. Um... You want to go first? Uh, you can kick it off. All right. <laughs> Kingston, Washington, man. What a place. Uh, we are so lucky to be from that town. We, Nick was actually moved around quite a bit more than I did because I'm the youngest brother. I'm the youngest of three. Um, Nick's the middle. And then Eric is our oldest brother. And we went to, we, we went to Kingston and Kitsap School District, North Kitsap School District. But we actually grew up more so in Hansville, Washington, uh, next to a small beach called Point No Point. And growing up out there, at least when we did, there was nobody around. I mean, you are out pretty much in the boonies. And we grew up on two and a half acres that was backed up to miles and miles of logging roads and pretty much free range to go do whatever you want. And I think that personally started building a strong connection with nature to, to grow up in that type of environment. Yeah, I think just coming from Kingston in general and sort of building into where we are now, being from such a small town, it definitely shaped our 
shaped our perception of the environment, but it also, we were still close enough to Seattle, like you're saying, that we had this inundation of information always coming across the Puget Sound. And every now and then you'd get little kind of blips about like, hey, there's so much more out there than just Kingston, Washington. And there's way more going on in the world than than what's happening in this small town. And I think where we grew up, it was kind of unique in the sense that all around us, there was just potential to, to fall down these rabbit holes that exist in a lot of small communities where you can get stuck and, and not come out and you can whether it's drugs or alcohol or other sort of negative connotations that are associated with small communities, a lot of those are really, they're very real, you know. And so for us, it was always just keep our heads down and play as many sports as we could and go outside as often as we could. And our mother was very adamant about pushing us in that direction and not letting us get into trouble in that way. (laughs) But I think that shaped us a lot in that there was always this sense of like, well, you kind of have two choices and one's to like waste your time. And the second choice and the one we were pushed super hard towards was use your time and and go do something, go figure out, you know, who you are as a person and go pursue an interest and, and try. And if you don't try and if something goes sideways, that's okay. Just start again and try something new. And so it really developed into for us through sports you know, we all all played sports pretty competitively up to college. And then as those started to kind of fade into the background, surfing was sort of always there as like our way to interact with the environment. And that sort of took over. And so for us, it's always been like, when can we organize the next surf trip? When can we get out there in the water? How can we go play? And, and as we studied the environment and learned more about that stuff, it was kind of how can we connect these two and connect our work to being able to be out there and actually play? Cool. So what did your parents do? Our dad was, he's in construction. Yeah, he's uh, a builder. He's a builder. <laughs> and we're really lucky to have a father that worked super hard, built his companies from the ground up. And that was such a cool experience to see that. But in 2008, we actually lost everything. Our house was repossessed. All our cars were taken. And that was an incredible reality check to put us back into like the social norm that a lot of other people live with. And I think in retrospect, it's actually a good thing that that happened because Nick and I would probably not be doing what we are now if that didn't happen. Our mom right now is still, she's a paraeducator, so she works with handicapped children, um, kind of helps them get through their day. So, and our dad's still doing construction. Cool. Do you remember a moment, like an aha moment or something about that experience that translated into something that changed you as a person and maybe reoriented your perspective in a way that made you more empathetic or more focused on maybe things that were bigger than yourself? Yeah, I don't know if it, at least for me, I wouldn't say it was like a specific moment as so much as it was just the reality the the reality of the situation like going from not having to worry about where your next meal is coming from to wondering where your next meal is coming from <laughs> is that's a pretty real shift in in the way that you live your day-to-day life i think it was humbling for us just to be able to go from like you know we were on the verge of like moving to maui and going to private school out there because we were so passionate about water sports and wanting to play in the ocean on top of everything else that we did um and when that kind of all fell through the cracks, it became not not so much about, like, what are you doing so much as it is, like, what are you doing for other people? Because everyone's kind of in that situation 
together. And then it's, it just, it shifts the whole perspective. I wouldn't say there was one moment. It was more just the whole dynamic shifted. And so then your attitude towards all of it shifts. Do you remember your first act of goodwill or activism or when you did something for somebody else? Yeah, I think at least in in sort of end of junior high, first years of high school, we started doing like simple volunteer work, which was like whether it was just go help with the community garden or I got in a car crash. And so part of my way to get out of the ticket for that was doing community service. But we would had always done like smaller things that were community service related. In college, it definitely got taken a step further. Nick and I both had worked with the Surfrider Foundation in university, and that was just such a rad place to be and a rad group of people to be involved with. And I always just thought, man, how cool is it that there's these groups of people out here that are actually trying to do something good and what a rad place to hang around because you feel better about yourself in doing it and you feel like you're contributing something positive to to this place. It's interesting because it seems like you guys plugged into the idea that hard work is actually valuable and that because I think a lot of kids these days get maybe the wrong impression that like hard work is for idiots and like you know the smart people are the people who figure out how to be successful without having to put any effort in. And you know it's interesting for me to hear stories from people who are successful who are doing good work um, they're not motivated by money as much as they are motivated by doing good things, but they also are still connected to the hard work part of it, which that's the that's the relationship I'm really trying to explore with this project. So how did you guys connect with environmental studies? Yeah, I could tie this into to what you were saying about the hard work a little bit as well. Just to, to brush on that really quick, I would say with, with all the athletics that we did play and as far as we did pursue them, I think what we learned through athletics and, and the direction our parents pushed us to go with that, you have to put in so much time before you get any reward, whether it's just going to race or winning a race or whatever. But it's like learning to become a student through that process and just that hard work in the front makes the end result way more gratifying than just instant gratification from something else but going into university and like switching into the academic thing for me it was it took me two years of of running track and field and before I had become so injured that I couldn't finish my collegiate career running I didn't know what I wanted to study so I was trying everything under the moon I flunked out of calculus twice I tried biology and then I tried to be like an engineer and I was just shooting for anything and everything that came my way and I think sort of that reckless attitude in a sense of just like try everything and see what sticks but I would say at least academically it took me until my last year if not my last quarter of college until I was actually really highly engaged with what was going on and that was at the point where you start getting into classes where you're no longer just covering basics you're You've gone beyond this point of like, oh, well, here's all the issues and here's like kind of what's going on out there. And you're starting to really dig into like, OK, well, how are we actually looking at this as a problem and, and what are people doing to try and fix it? And that is kind of what led me to like go beyond it and then pursue a graduate degree in environmental policy, because it just gets more and more interesting, like the deeper you go. 
So I grew up born and raised in Hawaii and uh, I grew up in the ocean. And I always tell people that, you know, the beach, my favorite beach, the beach that I would go to all the time, I was there more than I was in school. And I probably learned more there than I ever learned from any teacher. Can you guys think of a lesson that you individually have learned from the ocean? I'd say for, at least from surfing just in general, we are so much smaller than we think we are. I just remember going to surf with my friend who was an absolute nut. And he was like, yeah, we can get nautical twilight and beat everybody out there so there won't be a crowd. And the report said like 14 to 15 foot. And we were like, ah, oh, that's like the biggest we've ever been in, but we can, we can handle. And they don't upgrade the forecast till like 7.30 or 8 in the morning. So we got out there. And there was 18 to 25 foot faces like closing out this place. And there was nobody out. We saw these two uncles that paddled out on guns and they were like, what are you guys doing? Like, you shouldn't be out here on these tiny little boards. And I just remember taking a wave and I made the drop and then I stepped off the rail and just feeling so small, like just getting pushed so deep. And you're just like, you're, you're nothing compared to what any ego, any, I think I'm this, I'm some hot piece of crap. Like, <laughs> doesn't matter at that point. It wipes you clean of, of anything you think you might be worth. Yeah. That, that was definitely for me. Yeah, I think a lot of the same. And then sort of tying into that with the oceans, I think it just ends like feeling smaller, feeling like, you know, very humbled by the ocean. You also learn that like, it's okay to not be in control of what's going on. Not having control is just, it's just the way that it goes. Like, that's the way life goes. You don't get to pick X, Y, and Z. You don't get to choose all of this stuff. The only thing you can choose is how you react to a situation from, from a situation like in the ocean to a situation in the classroom. It's just learning to kind of remove yourself from the picture and take a step back and be really patient with the situation and, and understand that there's so much more going on there than you're ever going to be able to try and direct it keeps it it makes everything a lot simpler when you look at it that way and i think from a, at least from us being always stoked and like working with parlay and, and bringing some good energy to the organization like we're pretty pretty humble about everything and try to keep it that way because otherwise it just becomes fake and it's not it's not going to connect with anyone. You both have spent time in places where the indigenous culture really exhibits an extraordinary sense of stewardship over the environment and and also notably the ocean. And then you go to Hawaii and you see how everybody is sort of has this reverence for the ocean, the things that we were just talking about learning from the ocean, but also there is such an ingrained sense of that awe, that awareness um, for the ocean. How did those experiences for you guys translate into a sense of stewardship that you now are teaching others about our responsibility to be stewards of the ocean? I, I think, I mean, especially even like being in Kingston, like we grew up between two smaller, two, two native American reservations. And so even there, like you see the, the poverty on the reservation and you see like all these external things that are so stereotyped with reservations, but then growing up playing basketball, for example, half of our team, if not almost all the team was Native American kids when we were little. And so like you learn from them different and then you learn from, you know, 
white people, essentially. And between that and like being in Hawaii, kind of at least how I look at it, it all comes back to community and a sense of stewardship for the environment is really just a sense of appreciating where you are and what you have right in front of you and not thinking so much about everything else. In, in these indigenous cultures, like that is at the root of almost everything they do. It take care of other people just as much, if not way more than yourself, because it's all part of the same thing. You got to take care of them so that you're taken care of. Yeah, I totally agree. Strong communities are, are going to be, in the end of the day, what changes the world. And that's what we get at with getting these kids inspired in these communities. Yeah. So let's talk let's talk about the genesis of your current mission and uh, how how did you come up with this idea? Wanted to go on a 6-month surf trip. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah, I mean honestly, we wanted to do more of what we love to do and surfing is exactly that. I had interned with Sustainable Coastlines Hawaii my senior year in college and I met Kahi Picaro, the guy that started SCH and got to work with this a whole bunch of awesome people um, through that internship. And then I graduated and I got hired at a solar energy company because that was what my degree, the field was in. And I went into that so naive thinking that I was gonna change the world or we were gonna actually do something good. Um, but what I didn't realize, and solar's awesome, it's it's really good um, source of energy, but what I didn't realize was the type of corporate greed that's still involved in that. And like just making money is what it came down to. And I never saw myself as a person that would be good at screwing people over into a deal that they didn't really want, <laughs> or maybe they didn't even really need. So I called Nick one day in tears after my shift so I was working in a nine to five, you're getting paid 15 bucks an hour. You can't live in Hawaii making that much money. It's damn near impossible. You know, you're barely making rent. You can barely buy enough food. And I was like, I think I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to come home and here's what I want to do. Let's go on a surf trip down the West coast because just graduated all your friends, you know, UH has a lot of people with money. They're all in Indonesia, in Australia on surf trips. You're like, man, feel like I'm getting left out of this a little bit but it wasn't just a surf trip at that point it was being in these stores and selling renewable energy and understanding that it wasn't generating real change um, and then thinking back to that internship with sustainable coastlines and realizing that was real change that was community-based level action so I called Nick I told him this is my idea I called Kahi pretty much that same day and I was like look man this is what I want to do we want to use sustainable coastlines uh, curriculum and go and, and make this happen so Nick punched the plane ticket out to Molokai like two weeks later we went and did uh, education training through sustainable coastlines and then flew home and within two months we converted a school bus and we were off to the races I think that's how like a lot of great things happen right is it you just you 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 get inspired and you just so inspired that you just that's all you think about and you just want to do that. So describe a typical day with the kids. Just give me the lowdown. How does it go? <laughs> typical day, the alarm goes off. You wake up, you throw the the propane stove on, you boil a pot of coffee, 
You're on with, the phone with, with the, the teachers. With the kids. With the kids. With the kids, <laughs> oh. <laughs> with the kids man. Um, so it all starts kind of like just getting to the school. So you got to find what school you're going to, map it, make sure you're there. Then you roll up. Then it's like, okay, the kids are filing in and you're getting ready to teach. And that's like where it really starts to like come together, I would say. Because the kids are just like staring at you while they're freaking walking into the building. They're like, who are these people? Like some outsiders like those aren't our teachers like what are they doing here yeah and then as they kind of settle down and you you start to present yeah i don't know that's our chance to like grab their attention and we have like an hour with those kids that in most cases it's about an hour maybe a little less but you basically have one class period to send these kids off with a whole different perception of the world what's the age range i'm 25 he's 27 i think he means for the kids oh <laughs> yes uh we've came to we, college yeah kindergarten through college so okay okay so that's a big range yeah we've also spoken at like a lot of businesses and stuff too but in terms of like students that we count towards our total it's usually kindergarten through college was a kid in school at least once a year somebody would come in from outside to speak to us and it was almost every single time and i can remember some of these pre presentations like they were yesterday and which is remarkable because it was a long time ago but they were almost all terrifying it was almost always like some ex-con who like got addicted to heroin and killed seven people and he's out now and now he's here to talk to us about how like don't kill people and take heroin you guys don't strike me as fear-mongering types is there any positive effective way to utilize fear in your curriculum to motivate kids just at least to get the idea that this is an urgent matter yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> uh there's a few different videos that we will show one of them is the lace on albatross on midway atoll and it is so sad like we've had teachers cry before after you show it because it's such a striking film it was chris jordan who put that together 
the dude spent like eight years of his life documenting these albatross and how much plastic they're ingesting and how it's worked its way through the entire species but we use any fear as just sort of like a check for the students like make sure they're like on the right page with the information and then our our goal is to leave the classroom like feeling excited to take action on it so the fear is definitely there but we want to just keep it kind of abbreviated so it's not overwhelming and it doesn't add to like any situation they might be experiencing outside of school for example yeah you don't want them to walk out feeling hopeless that there's nothing that they it's so bad because of that video you want them to walk out like Woo, let's get this done <laughs> So you also do beach cleanups, which seem like a, an, a really other cool, very engaging way to like get kids on board, take them out, like actually participate, do something. Talk about how you work that into the program and like how that component really increases kids' understanding of, of the issue. Yeah, I, can, I mean, just in terms of working with Parlay, like they're sort of world renowned for some of the cleanups they're doing. And like they have this model called air, which stands for avoid intercept redesign. So when we're teaching with the kids and we get to like explaining what the intercept part of air is, that's basically we tie that to like a beach cleanup. And then if we can do a beach cleanup to follow up with our lectures, like on the weekend, we'll a lot of times try and organize a cleanup with that community and with the class then that's a way for us to get the students to like experience the problem firsthand and see it firsthand. So you teach the class and then you're like, hey, if you're really excited about this, we're going to have this cleanup thing. Talk to your parents. You, then we can bring you out. Probably the parents come too and it's like a big community effort. That's probably really awesome and feels really good. And you can teach and it's like, you know, you're in the lab. Basically, you can like pull, pull things off the ground and go like, look at this. See, remember we talked about this in class. So what's the... Um, What's like the most surprising thing that you found in a beach cleanup? Item wise? Yeah. Holy. <laughs> I'd say like, not like a crazy item, but something that's putting me in shock. But we did a cleanup with our friend from Algalita in Los Angeles at 72nd, or it was in Long Beach at 72nd Street. And oh my gosh, it's bad there. Like the amount of microplastics on the shore and stuff. And what we found a whole bunch of like thousands are these little tiny pellets that are called nurdles. And nurdles are pre-plastic production pellets. It's the most virgin form of plastic you can have before they turn it into whatever item it is. And we talked to him about how they got like, why in the heck are these here? I mean, obviously we know they can get spilled from shipping or what have you. Um, but he said that there's like four or five plastic production companies upstream of the San Gabriel River. And that a lot of times when it gets to these facilities, it's either spilled or it's a bad batch or, and they just end up in this river and on the beach. I think that was surprising to find that amount of them, not seeing an item for the first time, but just the scale of like, holy smokes. Any, you know, any human skulls or Fukushima wreckage or anything like that? <laughs> nothing quite that much we found lots of dead birds and fish and that kind of stuff found a dead seal once that was weird there's always random items and for us we like distinguish with the kids and and whoever's there cleaning we always distinguish between like single use and multi-use plastics so like the difference between a snickers bar wrapper that you use once and throw away versus like 
oh, we found a toilet seat. Well, that's really rare. You're probably not going to find a toilet seat at every beach cleanup. And like the toilet seat serves a good purpose in your life. Like that's not a bad kind of plastic necessarily, you know? So do you ever go into like, like in, I guess in California, there might be, but maybe not on the coast, but no, there are, there's like oil towns, right? Where like you're, do you ever go into schools where the kids' parents work for the oil industry and you're like presenting to them the, the evils of plastics? Yeah, I think that. And then, like, we get a lot of pushback on the bus, like, the fact that it's a big diesel bus. And it's like, well, how can you be environmentalist if you're driving this big diesel rig? And it's like, people don't understand the life cycle of a vehicle necessarily. And that, like, by the fact that we took this bus and repurposed it, that alone saved the amount of oil tenfold of what we're going to burn driving it. And, like... They just don't look at the whole picture or they don't necessarily understand the whole picture. And that's, you can't hate them for that. Like, yeah, we understand that it's a diesel bus and that that's not ideal. And like, we're trying to convert it to biodiesel or make it veggie oil. But that stuff takes time and money and we're pretty poor. (laughs) We're pretty busy. So there's not always that time and money. And then to speak a little more broadly to the oil industry, like, in America right now, for example, oil is growing and it's growing to feed the plastic industry. It's not growing to produce more fuel for our cars. It's not growing to produce more energy for our households because cars are turning into electric and our households are turning into wind and solar. And so people don't understand that the oil industry is trying to to use plastic to expand their life cycle, basically. And the amount of money that's been dumped into oil versus the amount of money that's been dumped into say recycling infrastructure it's just it's astronomical we're not going to be able to dispose of the amount of plastic that we're trying to produce so i think in that way there's always a a fight and there's always pushback because we're fighting a massive industry that is trying to write this off as like oh we're just we need more oil and we don't we got plenty of freaking oil so what sort of, you know, metrics or results do you look for to gauge whether or not you're having any success? If if we get feedback, like this year we started doing Google surveys with all the teachers that we go work with, but we're looking for like tangible, tangible impact, right? So whether it's that student got rid of single use utensils or that school did or they led a beach cleanup initiative in their community or they led a education initiative in their community. We want to see something tangible and that's how we like evaluate whether we had an impact or not. What would you say to somebody who's not coastal, somebody who's completely like in the middle of the flyover states, like how would you bring this home for them and contextualize it for them and, and in a way that makes them understand how important it is, even though they don't live next to an ocean? Yeah, we did that all last summer with Parlay. We worked in Saskatchewan. so many communities <laughs> and it wasn't necessarily in the Midwest of the U.S., but it was up in Canada and it's the same it's like the same stereotypes that you hear about. It's so, so true. The Midwest is such a, such a genuinely like nice, hospitable place, but then it's also just so removed from anything ocean. And so connecting with them, it's like bringing it back to like their local waterways and people don't 
put the pieces together on that too often either, but a lot of those rivers that are up in Canada, eventually those all outfall to the oceans. And what ends up in their rivers, a lot of that stuff, because plastic just turns into smaller bits of itself, a lot of that stuff gets through dams or whatever else is downstream of that and will eventually end up in the ocean. And like showing them that like they're truly almost at the very, very beginning of that ecological chain, I think it gives them like a sense of almost empowerment to be like, look, like you're not just at the end of this chain. You don't just see the plastic pollution. You're at the very, very beginning of this river and like making that connection for them. And I think that brings it back to them. And they definitely, especially not being by the oceans, understand the importance of water. I think they understand it just as much, if not better than a lot of people that live close to the oceans because they use it for everything. It's irrigation for their farms or it's like drinking water. It's, you know, the lake that they get to go hang out on it when they get a break. Like they have that same connection that people have by the oceans. It's drawn in a different way, but it's still like really relevant. So you must have a, a broken down bus story. Right, we're, we're on the verge of being broken down right now. Yeah. <laughs> but our biggest one. Yeah, that was about... literally when we just left. We had gotten just out of Washington. And it was right before this that snow apocalypse hit. Oh my gosh, it was so cold. We just finished teaching at this school, and we have a diesel heater in here. But literally, the diesel heater broke, and we were stuck on the Washington coast. It was right when the government shutdown was happening, too. We're just sitting there in this empty campground, taking, like, 50-mile-an-hour winds on the head, just pissing rain for four days. The bus is just shaking. And we're like, screw it. Like, let's go to Oregon, start teaching there. We get into Oregon, and then the transmission gets stuck in gear two. And we're on, like, our last... <laughs> $200 that we have to live off of. So we found the one mechanic in Astoria, which is to some people a cool town, but also a very interesting place to be stuck. And we're just stuck in this hotel room, like no money. The part doesn't show up for like a whole nother two days. We'd have call our dad and have us him front us 500 bucks. Yeah, it was a... Cause we had, nothing left we were like dude can you please send us 500 and he's like i'm fed up with sending you guys money to go on your stupid trip like <laughs> but i think we're was, like we swear it's gonna work just let it like please like it was crazy because at that point we were seriously considering turning around and going home and just giving up on the whole thing we we're like this is a terrible idea we're it's like right when it started too yeah i don't know we made it to southern oregon Port Orford. I remember the sun actually popping out and it was like, finally, it's getting warm. Like we're getting there. Yeah. And we had taught, I think we taught like just over two or 3000 students. And we were like, how in the world are we going to get to 10,000 this year? Like once we started getting like Southern Oregon, Northern California, it just started like clicking and we started to figure it out and kind of hit our rhythm and, and hit communities with more people in them. And like, start making more connections and next thing you know we're teaching assemblies with 400 kids in them that's when it started to take off but yeah being broken down in oregon was just freaking gnarly <laughs> so i don't know if maybe you guys can't say this in front of each other so you know if you want you can send me emails later privately but do you do you ever have fantasies about just joining the rat race 
like, oh man, this would just be so much easier if I just got a job somewhere. I could make money. I could, you know, I, I don't have to drive this bus anymore. What what are your what are your grass is greener fantasies that you have? I mean, All the time we have like I have a freaking once. master's degree. I could go get a real job. <laughs> I don't know if he can but, get a real job. Uh. I yeah, we talk about it and like right now Hans is thinking about applying for an online job or I think for us, it's just like, as long as we can make ends meet, we'll be good for right now. We want to get definitely beyond that in the next year or so here. And I think if, if we get to the point where we don't see growth happening with what we're doing here, then that's when things change for sure. But right now we still see potential and we're working really hard to kind of kick off next year even stronger and like really, really flush things out and develop what we're doing. But yeah, I mean, we got to eat. You got to make a paycheck. I'm sure you get asked this all the time, and I'm sorry if it's cliched, but like, what is one small thing that anyone can do to make an impact on a positive impact on the oceans? Take a plastic inventory. Take that inventory and realize how much crap is around you. Superfluous shit. <laughs> or go sit in a Target or a Walmart and watch just like beep, 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 and it's everything, man. So I think it's easy to get overwhelmed. Um, but just starting like what, what you're saying, one thing, a reusable water bottle, maybe bamboo utensils. That's a super easy one to switch to and start building the habit. Yeah. I think like for me, what's interesting is the psychology behind it. And you look at like what, what, is, what happens like if you do an action differently, right? And so whether it's taking a reusable cup to Starbucks to get that filled versus like taking the one that they give you that's single use just that small action alone gives you a small dopamine hit and it gives you a dopamine hit that's like the same kind of dopamine hit you get from working hard at something and then seeing the reward. It's like a longer lasting, more positive dopamine hit than the instant gratification you get off Instagram when you get the little red notification. And so trying to build a habit around like just one simple thing like that. And if you can do that, that kind of snowballs into more and more and like it's it's self-reinforcing right so once you start and you sort of like get hooked on one just little thing you're always looking for other things to kind of add to that that's awesome okay people are gonna hear this they're gonna read this how do you want people to support you if they want to support you we do have a gofundme right now um we would love any donations but i think right now like the best way you could support us is just like Follow us on Instagram at SCH Road Trip, and then if, like, we want to help you. So if you have questions, send us a message on there, and then we can start the conversation. Like, that's what we want to do is have that talk with people. So that's the easiest way to connect with us. And if they want to reach out, that's the best way for them to do it for sure. I want to thank my guests, Hans and Nick Shippers, for taking time out of their crusade to speak with us today on the PMA podcast. The print version of this story is in issue number five of our print magazine, which also includes some incredible photography by Troy Nebaker. You can still get a copy of PMA 5 in the back issue section of our website, getthatpma.com. All of the sound design and nature sounds were created by the sound tracker Gordon Hempton. You can learn more about Gordon's amazing effort to create a more quiet and peaceful planet at quietplanet.com. And you can also listen to a lot of his other really, really cool recordings. 
All of the rest of the sound design and music in this episode was created by me, Matt Johnston, here at PMA headquarters. And the entirety of this podcast is copyright 2022 by PMA Publishing, LLC. Thanks again for listening, and we hope to hear you again on the next episode of the PMA Podcast. Toodaloo!